After 25 years in the fashion industry, I've realized that fashion is not really about the clothes, it's about the people. I'm Laura Van Root Poole, and this is What We Wore. Wiggy Heinmarch is the designer and vivacious personality behind her namesake brand, Wiggy Kit. Wiggy shares insights from her life, from the confidence she found after having children, to a turning point in her life after hearing the poem, The Dash. Wiggy is an inspiration for living life on your own terms as she lives and runs her company between London and the Bahamas. Wiggy, I'm so excited to talk to you, and um, I've been dying to talk to you for a long time. Finally, you're available. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm so busy. So busy. You've tracked me down finally. And I've actually tracked you down to come all the way to Charlotte. I cannot wait for that. For me, it's going to be the first return to the U.S. properly <laughs> since I left. However, I, what was it, 2000 that I left? Something like yeah. that. So it's a long time ago. It feels like yesterday, but just, yeah. just, but it is a long, long time. I can't wait to see Charlotte. I can't wait to see how different it all is. And I, obviously, I can't wait to see you. Oh, I can't wait to see you. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of these questions, I know a lot of answers to. So I'm going to try yeah. to... <laughs> try to sound I'm... surprised. Be surprised when I tell you this revelation. <laughs> and <laughs> will you tell the listeners where you're from? You're from so many um, places. <laughs> yeah, I don't really have a sort of uh, a where I'm from kind of nailed down yet. So I'm actually British. British parents, but I was born in Singapore. We lived there for a number of years. My parents had previously lived in Canada. They had emigrated to Canada when they were newlyweds. They got married there. They lived for 15 years there. And then I moved, uh, they moved to Singapore where they had me. We moved back to the UK. We lived there for a number of years. And then fortunately, my father sold his company to an American company, which meant he had to go over and run that business over in the States, which was just the best uh, thing that ever happened to us. So they moved to Newport, Rhode Island, obviously in New England, which was uh, uh, just heaven on earth. And then following that, I then moved down to Charlotte. And then I'm back in the UK now. So <laughs> all over. How old were you when you moved to the States? I was 18. Well, my parents left when I was 16. Can you believe? They left me in the UK <laughs> at 16. They somehow thought I knew how to look after myself at 16. And they, so they up, up and left me. I stayed actually, I was at a dancing school. I was at boarding school. So I stayed for um, a further two years. I'd come out on vacations to come and visit them and see them. So at 18, I just came out for my summer vacation uh, as you probably know, I met an American guy on that <laughs> vacation. Typical, typical, didn't go back to England. Did your parents have wanderlust or did it, was it just the company taking them different places? I mean, they've, they lived in really interesting places. Random places. No, you know, my father, we had a family company um, that he ended up working for when he returned from all those travels in in Montreal and in Singapore. So before then, he wasn't even working for the family business. It was lots of different businesses that he was working for and exploring all over the place. And certainly my grandfather did a lot of, I think my father, in fact, went to university in Clues to as well as my grand uh, my grandfather. So because we're in the watch and clock making industry, it meant that that involved sort of traveling around quite a bit and um so no it was it was just it was just just the way it sort of went really I don't 
I don't think it was massively planned. It just happened yeah. that way. And how did you handle the different environments as a child in the moving? I preferred it that way. In <laughs> fact, in fact, you know, actually I'm such a homebody, which is quite contradictory to the person that I am because I really like uh, having things in order. I don't like a lot of change. But strangely enough, I do like the change that when you do move to another country or to a new place, you change it up a bit. And every time you move to a new location, new friends, new, new environment, you get another opportunity to kind of not reinvent yourself, but to be another part of yourself and explore another part of yourself that if you're just around the same people in the same location all the time, you're just sort of the same person. But it's, it's the people that are around you and the environment that, that's around you that changes everything, I think. So I like that. I remember you, you're big into Sunday supper. Oh, no, Sunday lunch. Sunday, Sunday lunch. lunch. <laughs> Sunday supper. No, Sunday supper is like half an avocado with a bit of vinaigrette. <laughs> and what's Sunday lunch? <laughs> well, yes, actually, I have a lot of American friends, as you know. And in fact, um, these lovely friends of ours who've just started sending all their sons to university in London is still bemused by this whole Sunday lunch business. They say, so why, why? I said, well, no, Sunday lunch, you have to. You have to roast some sort of animal, <laughs> put lots of, uh, you know, roast potatoes with it. And that's a big family thing that happens in the UK. And I would have imagined, see, I can't really remember you guys not having Sunday No, we did. Ours lunch. was Ours was supper. But oh. I, yeah. <laughs> but what I remember about yours is that it was a drinking lunch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Sundays are for gin and tonics. So my, my, my Sunday, I wake up on a – this is actually – I really do have this routine. and um, I wake up on a Sunday, have my bath, uh, listen to Radio 4. I listen to good old talk radio. <laughs> I listen to something called The Archers, which is uh, a really sort of fuddy-duddy cereal. I then go down and I make myself a very stiff gin and tonic. <laughs> oh, my um, God. And I light uh, a check and speak number 88 incense stick. <laughs> okay. We light the fire, lunch starts to be made, and we eat around sort of two-ish. But okay. it's, yeah, it's by, by two o'clock. I mean, I'm completely in the bag. <laughs> 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 I much prefer day drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me or what surprised you about the US when you moved and were there any were there any funny stories about oh, yeah. your initial culture shock? I think you know this is a really unusual thing. What you know, so I grew up, you know, when I was a young, you know, when I was a child in the 80s, 90s, you know, the American culture, you know, and how it was fed to us, we see obviously all through Lots of, you know, we have all your media that comes over to yeah. it. To, and we sort of believed that America was a place where um, literally anything goes. And you can sort of, it's so much more sort of liberal than we are in the UK. Right. And, uh, you know, we're, and probably you're fed an idea that we're incredibly uptight and incredibly straight-laced and all these sorts of funny things they think about. English people. And I find actually it's quite the reverse. So <laughs> I was really surprised that how conservative America was in so many respects, things like the kind of not drinking until you're 21 business. And, you know, you, I think you stay a, stay a young person or a child longer in America. Whereas, so by the time you're 14 in England, 
you know, people sort of expect you to kind of basically be an adult. You hang out with adults. I have a 16 and a 14 year old uh, daughters now. They're very much, they're just like our mates and we right. hang out with them. We, dare I say it, have the occasional drink with them. We go out <laughs> to nightclubs to them. And so it's, it's, that's what really surprised me. And do you remember when I moved down to Charlotte and I was constantly being confused with being French? Because nobody, could, <laughs> do you remember? Nobody could believe that I was English because, because your teeth my were teeth beautiful. were white. <laughs> my teeth were white and straight. And they said, "You can't be English." Do you remember? Somebody said, "Oh, I I said, they said we're we're in we're in we're in the world you find from London." And they said, "Oh, bonjour." Do you remember that? <laughs> it was great. Oh, that's mortifying. So. But yes, I actually do remember it. <laughs> But it was, uh, no, it was amazing. I mean, I learned so much from living there. And I absolutely, as you know, I adored it. And it's quite funny. The other day, my, my kids said to me, you know, I say the other day, this is probably when they're much younger. They said, mommy, are you American? <laughs> I said, no, well, why do you think I'm American? Well, well you, know, you, you know, you say things like Americans do. And I, I'm like, no, I'm not. But I'm a, sort of, I'm a wannabe American. <laughs> I think you do think like an American a little bit. A hundred percent. Yeah? Yeah. A hundred percent. Will you tell me about when you moved to Charlotte and how we met? I had an American boyfriend, as I told you, and we packed up our U-Haul. We moved from my parents' house. Um, he was six years older than me, so this was quite risque <laughs> in, in a lot of ways. So we, we had lived there together for a couple of years in my parents' house in Newport, Rhode Island. And then we packed up our U-Haul. He was offered a job down in Charlotte drove down to Charlotte, knowing nothing of it, having never seen it even. Mm. And I remember sort of driving down and going, wow, this is one, and going through all the different states as you're driving down, going through Pennsylvania, and then, <laughs> you know, seeing the horse and carriages. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it's like, you know, you're just slowly entering into the South and how different it all was. And I, it was fascinating. And so when we first moved there, it was, you know, I was bouncing around. I was doing a few little odds and end jobs, you know, here, there and everywhere. And uh, I remember one day um, I was living in an apartment complex, which is this brand new development that was all just coming up. It's kind of the epicenter of Charlotte at the time. And my then boyfriend said to me, oh, there's this amazing boutique that's just opened, literally just outside our front door. You should go and see whether you can go and get a job there. <laughs> and so I literally sort of, I think I pro probably put on an okayish outfit <laughs> and, and, and literally walked in that front door of Capitol. You were sitting behind the front desk. <laughs> and I said, any chance that you're looking for any help at all? And, uh, and you were so sweet. And you said, well, actually, yes. <laughs> and I became your first ever employee. Yes. And, oh, yeah. And it was <laughs> and you, just an amazing you were experience. Excellent. You were, you were the best employee ever. <laughs> oh, really? Don't yes, you really that. were. <laughs> I remember we had, your, we had your voice on the recording for a good 10 years. It's just you. I think we called you in London to have you re-record it, actually. <laughs> it's funny you should say that because all the other jobs that I did in Charlotte as well, they put me on the answering machine oh, as yeah. well. <laughs> yes, you're a great, a great orator. <laughs> what, what was your first impression of Capital, or what was your impression of Southern women? I was so impressed with them because, to be honest, I'm going to be quite rude about the Brits here. At that stage in time, I mean, you know, as I said, I left in 2000, and at that stage in time, English women really did not make 
any effort. You know, they were embarrassed to make an effort. It was simply kind of a bit not really the dumb thing. You know, you don't want to really draw attention to yourself or, you know, make a meal of yourself in any way. And so I completely learned about, you know, you come down to the South, you know, women have standards down there. They care, you know, <laughs> the strange thing called standards. But women do have standards and they, they take that very seriously. And there was a real decorum down there, politeness, old-fashioned manners, but, but, you know, a care for themselves, a care for how they appear, a sort of propriety, really. Well, it, it very much has influenced the way that I am now and how I sort of want other women to kind of learn to be as well, because I really, I really thought that was just a lovely thing. And of course, I love the enthusiasm of those Southern women. They were so warm, inviting, friendly. I, I got the shock of my life when I moved back to London and I realized <laughs> actually, I, I was like, obviously I'm not as, something's fallen off on me on the plane because I'm obviously <laughs> not as charming and as wonderful as I thought that I was, but you know, <laughs> Americans are very good at making you feel very welcome and incredibly interesting, even when you're not. Well, I think Southerners particularly. I mean, yes. I think it's kind of their, it's like the, it's a hospitality thing. It's just being being a, a warm oh, yeah. and welcoming host. Very, very, very polite. Very polite. I always loved that um, when you, when you sadly left me, you worked for another Southerner, Catherine Prevost. Is she a she's from North. Yes, she's from North Is Carolina. She? Do you know, it's, no, you, I think you're absolutely right. I just always associate, no, you, I think you're right. I always associate her with, with uh, New York, for, exa- for some reason. I don't quite, quite know why. But no, um, yeah, I've only ever worked for Americans. I refuse to work for anyone else. Um, she was amazing. So I, I, whenever I'm interviewed, lucky enough to be interviewed by people, uh, you guys come up in conversation a lot. So both you and Catherine Prevo were absolutely completely pivotal <laughs> and I was so lucky to have worked for you know two very lovely southern women as I've now discovered <laughs> <laughs> exactly well tell, tell me about that experience because that was interesting you that was jewelry and um you, re- you really ran that business I mean I, I came to visit you I was you know it was it's totally by accident as well because I didn't I didn't actually know anything about jewelry she took me on very much uh, she had actually met me because I was running a um, a cashmere company for another American. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I mean, I knew the cashmere. I didn't know that was an American business too. Yeah. He had a series of amazing cashmere companies called Cashmere London, Cashmere Aspen, Cashmere Bridgehampton, Cashmere uh. Palm Beach or whatever it would be. And he yeah. had all these locations and the swankiest locations. All the cashmere came out of, was milled in Scotland, at the finest mills in Scotland. So I learned a lot about cashmere, design of cashmere, et cetera, and so forth. For a couple of years, I ran that. And then I was headhunted by another jeweler across the street who liked the look of me for some reason. (laughs) Yes, my customer service, I guess, (laughs) and employed me for that. And I was telling Catherine, who was my client, I said, by the way, I won't be here in about a week's time. I'm moving across the street. To another uh, jeweler, she goes, "Oh my God, don't work for, don't work for them. Come and work for me." So I was like, "Well, I've already signed the contract." So no, 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 I can get you out of that contract. It's fine. <laughs> and I said, "Well, I much prefer to work for you. You're much more my cup of tea because you're American for a start, and I really love what you produce." So um, that's how it all started. 
yeah, no, I learned everything about jewellery on that job, having known nothing about it before. But I think I'm quite adaptable when it comes to things like that. I know Catherine was just starting her career when you started with her. And yeah. Um, and I think, and I obviously was just starting with my career. And I think it's interesting to have started with two entrepreneurs so early in their in their yeah. in their career. I'm shocked that you didn't quit <laughs> from watching that. <laughs> I have to say, you know, as I I say also when people interview me, uh, talking about entrepreneurship and starting your own business is I would not have been able to start my own business, and I would not be still going to this day had I not done all the grunt work in the beginning, had I not seen behind the scenes, had I not realized what really is involved in running your own business. And that especially in the fashion business, there's a lot of grunt work, believe it yeah. or not, <laughs> isn't there? That. There's like <laughs> falling of boxes and, you know, there's a lot of unglamorous stuff. But I was prepared for that because I'd done it all. I'd seen it all. I'd taken out the bins. I had... <laughs> counted the stock, you know, it was no surprise to me what it actually involved. I wouldn't have done it had I not have had so much time doing all that leading up to it. Having experience with Catherine with production, mm. I'm sure was really interesting and yeah. very helpful for what you do now. Because you you handled all that production, didn't you? I mean, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Knowing, okay. Again, as I said, knowing nothing about jewelry, but I learned very quickly. And you know, having manufacturers in different locations all over the world, people who specialize in different types of jewelry. You know, I was doing everything from fine jewelry through to costume jewelry. So costume jewelry might come out of Venice, for example, crystal, you know, Venetian yeah. crystal you might be working with, but then you might be working with uh, ebony wood and diamonds. And that might be somebody in Italy that makes those or specializes in that kind of technique, you know, carving whole chunk rings out of pure turquoise, coral, things like that. Uh, and then dealing with sort of, you know, everything in between. And then we were stringing the, the actual necklaces in the UK. So beautiful stones that you'd get in kind of lovely strings and working them, you know, she was really well known for a lot of kind of Asian inspired jewelry. So a lot of carved jade amethyst and she was the one that really started off that whole thing where you could buy you know five bracelets at a time in a stone like an amethyst or a fluorite or citrine you know and for people who believe and strongly sort of feel associated with sort of stones and how they can make you feel or give you energy you know people come in and buy those five at a time yeah, I learned just so much and of course, how to deal with clients. Well, you always were great at that. But I, I think that um, I, I also think not to date us, but that was <laughs> early on in the internet. And so yeah. how, how did you manage to do that? Did you have to travel to all of these places to deal with the manufacturers? Or I mean, how? That's a very good point. We used to fax. <laughs> we used to fax. I mean, how funny is that? That's ridiculous. We used to fax. Actually, we did do a bit of emailing, but it wasn't it, it was wasn't such a like different it is. thing, wasn't it? No, it wasn't like what it is now. We'd, uh, there was a fair in Vicenza that we would go to together. Catherine is, as you know, hilarious, really <laughs> funny. Of course, she knows everything there is about Italy, and her mum and her are total bon viveurs. Hilarious. <laughs> we had such a laugh. We would be laughing our heads off the whole time. So, yeah, we'd go off and do those uh, things a couple of times a year go and meet all your kind of your manufacturers, vendors, things mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, it's all a massive learning curve. At what point did you 
decide you wanted to go out on your own? I think I always knew I was going to do something eventually by myself. Having the, the, the confidence and the responsibility that people like you and Catherine gave me to learn and explore and try my hand at things. And then things actually turning out well and were really su successful. I mean, you know, seeing our jewellery on the cast and crew of Sex and the City, you know, and constantly having pieces that you have played a part in being featured in Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and things like that. You go, oh, wow, my gosh, <laughs> maybe, maybe, you know, it's, it's, you know, when you, somebody gives you the platform to be able to try, try these things out, it works out. You're thinking, well, maybe I could do it too. Yeah. Maybe I could have my name above the door one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> you come from a family or you're married into a family that mm. has a lot of entrepreneurs. Yeah. <laughs> was that intimidating? I guess at first it was, yes, because obviously my, my husband's uh, sister is Anya Highmarch and his other sister, Nicole, is also a brilliant entrepreneur as well. She used to be in business with Greg Renfrew, who I believe has been on your podcast before. She started up the first ever wedding list company in the UK that I'm talking about Nicole now and sold that, I believe, successfully to Martha Stewart. So that was a pretty amazing thing. Uh, real go-getting women. So that was intimidating at first. Of course, when you get to know people, it's like almost like when you start to get to know famous people and you realize actually, you know, that old adage, they're just people at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. um, there's nothing, there's nothing different between you or I or any, any, anything else. But um, yes, it was, but I keep my ears open at all times. And I've definitely absorbed a lot of amazing stuff from being around those incredible people. Yeah, for sure. Your grandfather's funeral, there was a moment that sparked your real, your real turn. Yeah, it's, I'm going to try and say this while actually even having a few tears, but <laughs> whenever I explain, everybody says, what is that necklace? What's written on it and why? I always start telling the story and I, like so spontaneous <laughs> tears start coming out of my eyeballs. So this is my, my grandfather who died, unfortunately, at the funeral. My cousin was reading, actually it's an American poem called The Dash and it's probably slightly, slightly cheesy, but amazing. Uh, it's, it was talking about the dash, the dash being the representation of the years you are alive on Earth. So, and the whole premise of this is live your dash. In other words, when you see your sort of, you know, the year you're born, dash, to the year you died, make the most of that dash, mm. go and grab it. it that's because that's the sum of your life here on Earth. And I believe part of it says, you know, so basically live your dash. I love that. We, yeah, it was amazing. God, I'm getting all. <laughs> God, it's my husband squeezed my hand. And he looked at me and he gave me that look as if to say, you know, you've let sort of things, fearful things stop you. You yeah. actually can do it. Yeah. Go and do it. Live your dash. It really struck home for me. And I thought, okay, what shall I, I need to somehow remember this each and every day so I thought can I bring myself to put the minutest little dash right here on my wrist I mean it'll be so small somebody might think it's a little pen mark because I'm, I'm not a massive uh, you know I don't have <laughs> lots of tattoos and he very kindly had this beautiful thing made for me which has it all on on there I don't have to tattoo myself now which is rather 
lucky. And does it have your birth date and a dash on it? Actually, that's a bit morbid. I, that, would scare, <laughs> that would scare me a bit. I don't like the thought of that. But maybe when, actually, you know, this is a good idea. Whichever child gets this, yes. they might have to add it on. Right. Because that would be a lovely thing. Good idea. <laughs> and you have two daughters. They, they were both going to boarding school. Is that around the time when you started it? Uh, no, not yet. No. I had a, a few years left before that joy. Uh, entered my life. <laughs> no, actually, my youngest was uh, just about to enter a prep school. So yeah. she was four years uh, or hang on, was it prep school? No, it's a primary school. Four years old anyway. So oh, the other okay. one was six years old, four years old, just got them out of the house, basically full time, Monday through Friday. My, my life became my own to a certain respect. And then, yeah, I just thought, well, now's, now's the time, I think. And did you know what Wiggy Kit would look like? Did you always have an, an idea that that would be it? I knew that it would always be classic with a twist. I always knew that whatever I produced was going to be something that you hold on to, you love forever. It's not going to be a passing fad or a trend. I wasn't interested in that. I was interested in creating really good quality, beautiful things, timeless pieces and when I say timeless, I think that has slightly bad connotations because you think, oh, it's going to be a bit boring, isn't it? It's not boring. It always has to have a classic feel to it, but it really must stand apart from the crowd. It has to. Um, I don't want to do shrinking violet kind of clothes, but <laughs> really not interested in that. No, it would not suit you. <laughs> did you work on your own or did you have a team right away? <laughs> no, I, I worked on my own uh, for a number of years, completely by myself. I did it all totally by myself. Strangely enough, now I wouldn't want to go back to working completely by myself. At the time, I, I didn't find it lonely. I was fine with it. I felt confident enough in myself. Of course, now I've got a team of uh, about four full-time people. And various people, you know, other people like PR agents and things like that, consultants that you use for whatever reason it might be. Um, and I really love my team now. And the thought of not having them there, it fills me with dread. Yeah, I did it all myself, though, for a number of years. And how do you lead? I have the biggest fear. I lead like <laughs> Michael from The Office. <laughs> I think, and I, d I didn't want to suggest it, so I love The Office, America, the American office. Yeah, yeah. And when I watch it, I just look at it and cringe, and I think, oh, my I do God, too. that's, that's I do me. Too. I do the same thing. That's me. I'm bloody. <laughs> oh, my God, it's so cringy. I'm just, I'm just like that, juvenile and cringy. <laughs> how, do you, how do you make sure that your voice is always in the designs? I mean, is that, is that part hard when you bring on a team? I refuse to let go of, of that. <laughs> I'm afraid I have to be involved in every single part of that. It has to come from me. Uh, I will never be able to relinquish that. It, <laughs> it is it's a, it's probably the un, will be the undoing of my business. I'm very lucky. <laughs> I, ha I have the most incredible guy that I work with now who helps me with the production. And he and I are an amazing team together. And he brings out the best in me, whether I bring out the best in him, probably not, but I, he brings out the best in me and he really helps the whole thing 
he expedites it. He really makes it all happen. Um, and he's been invaluable and I absolutely adore him. Amazing. What are you most proud of that you have created in this business? Uh, I think a following, really, a loyal following, because, yeah. you know, my clients literally, and I, this is going to sound a bit big headed, I don't mean it like this, but once I have caught a client, they stay with me oh, yeah. and they, they're addicted to my pieces. So I know as soon as I can get a piece on someone, they'll keep coming back and they don't just keep coming back for one they'll buy the entire collection. This is actually how my winter collection came about. It was a simply a case of I started getting so many, because I wasn't going to do winter, I was just going to do summer. Mm. And I had so many people saying, now, Wiggy, I wear your stuff all summer long. That's all I wear. And then you leave me high and dry for winter. What <laughs> do you wear in the winter? Because I don't know what to wear. What do you wear? Because, you know, I can't find anything I like for winter. I was thinking, this is ridiculous. And I started sort of sending them in various different directions of different designers. I think I've got a captive audience here crying out for me to dress them year round rather than just in the summer. So why don't I do, do that? And that's what basically how it all came about. One thing that you touched on there, which I think is the real crux of it for me, is that people want to know how you dress. I mean, people want to see how you do it. And I think that you you know, social media is so amazing to, to be able to have that platform mm. for you, to be able to show people how to tie it correctly mm. and how you like to tie your bows mm. and all that stuff. Mm. I, I'm mesmerized by it. and <laughs> Probably not in a good way. I'm sure lots of people just sit there. You know, rather Instagram, do you, do you follow people just because they really, really annoy you? And you just, several, several, yes. Yeah. In fact, I've got... I've You're got not this, one of them. <laughs> you know where you can save things? And it's just, you know, and I've got different things saved in different files. One of them, and I'm not joking you, is actually called annoying. I save <laughs> other people's terrible Instagrams. And I, just to look back oh, at future... <laughs> I'm so I'm so concerned that I'm one of those people, and I'm sure I am one of those people. But I also find, on the flip side, it does help people decide whether they want to purchase that or not because they really see it on a real woman. You know, really, I think that's always been my problem with e-commerce mm. is that you mm. know you you buy these luxury pieces and then nobody's you know being your lady in waiting and and tying you up in them and you know zipping you and buttoning you. Yeah. And I think you you go through the process of doing that. And so it yeah. makes it so personal and you know how to do it when you know you roll up the sleeves. You yeah. sort of I mean uh -huh. and, you fiddle. And, yeah, and and but you also talk about it, and I think mm. I, it's so. I love watching it because I I can see you in the dressing room twenty years ago saying the exact same things. I used to do that. I strip off of in front course. of my clients and start going, "Oh my god, check this out!" But but I think actually this is a really good point that I've noticed. I do the occasional pop ups, so I have my clients coming in, and. What I think is quite interesting, I've noticed, is a lot of women, they will take something off a hanger or take something out of a plastic bag. They will put it on. Uh, this is not meaning to be sort of rude about generalizing women, but often women will put it on and just stand there. <laughs> and you can't put, no matter how amazing any garment is in the entire world, you can't literally just chuck it on and, and then look at yourself in the mirror and go... <laughs> I don't well, I don't, I don't really <laughs> think this works for me. It doesn't work like that. Uh, you have to, don't, doesn't matter 
where it's coming from, any dress, you put it on, you get it in the right position, you're, you're moving it around, yeah. you are styling it on yourself. There's no point standing there like a wooden board and going, <laughs> this doesn't suit me. <laughs> exactly. You know? Yeah. You have to fiddle. You have to get it going. And there's certain designers actually that that I would say are look terrible in the hanger just consistently mm. and mm. and look amazing when you put them on. I mean I think yeah. Dries is one of those that you know mm. it's not same thing like you can't just like put it on button it up and I mean it really okay. has to be adjusted 18 different mm. ways to make it yeah. look like it's yours and that's kind mm. of the whole point of it. Yeah. The popping of the, the, pop collar. the collars. Yeah. The, Sleeve roll, you know, it's these are actually really important parts of it. The fact that you have that um, ability to share that with clients is really incredible. I mean, aren't we in a crazy <laughs> moment that you can do that? I mean, no, it's, I think it's yeah. really special. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, thank God for Instagram. And yeah. also, isn't Instagram in some ways terrible, but also so fantastic? You know, it's it's the best time waster in the world. <laughs> and the worst time waster but it also gives you a window I mean we wouldn't have been able to I would probably you know I'm a direct consumer client apart from at Capital and Matches <laughs> you know two places but I'm basically a direct consumer business model and if it wasn't for Instagram I probably wouldn't be able to do that I would have to be a wholesale business model because I'd need to get it out there. Yeah, and I think think of yeah. your product like on a on a stage sort of website with those mm. you know flat photos of a per, of a yeah. model, just like yeah. duh, you know. Yeah. The fact that you have these videos of you in the clothes making. Yeah. I, I just think it's extraordinary. If I buy something, I have to I seek out the video. So if I'm buying someone else's something yeah. or other, I seek out the video before I make the purchase because. That's, you can't fudge a video. Yeah. You can fudge a photo and you have no idea how it sort of really falls or moves and really how voluminous it might be. Agreed. And so, yeah, the video is everything, I think. What do you think the benefits are with starting a business a little bit later in life? Well, for me, having the maturity, <laughs> I don't seem very, I don't seem very mature for a six, uh, a 46 year old, but it's, uh, believe it or not, can you imagine how immature I was? years ago <laughs> having the maturity and the life experience uh where you've had to sort of face you know obviously uh, i've been lucky enough to be a mother the challenges that comes with being a mother how i came out okay the other side of it various things that i thought my god i can't cope with this or i'm not able to do this you come out the other side you're like oh my god i did it oh i survived i was fine that sort of back thing really helped. Well, for me, I did not have the conf confidence, self-confidence or a, a belief in my own ability when I was younger that only came after having had children, really. Yeah. So for me, I'm ready for what can be thrown at you. I'm also ready for the success that hopefully will, will and is happening, which is amazing. I'm very grateful for that, but I'm just, I don't know, I'm just sort of in a different place. Yeah. Completely different. What would you share with somebody younger who's anxious about starting their own business? I think you must do it when you are ready. And don't worry about what age you are and actually go out and work, work in the industry, work for someone else first, you know, prove your worth with someone else, do the grunt work really see what that business really truly entails. Are you ready for that? You know, 
I think working for someone else, I think a lot of people do start their own businesses these days. I mean, who doesn't almost have their own business? <laughs> starting, <laughs> starting things up left, right and center. Some people shouldn't start their own business. <laughs> <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? Some people actually are not cut out. Some people are people that are very good at working and should work for other people, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, that's where their talents lie. And some people are more, I think, to be an entrepreneur and a successful one is to actually not think too deeply. If you think too deeply about anything, you will never get off running. It's those very analytical people, like the, you can find some very, very clever people who have got great grades and all other things. We spend a, a long time in the preparation of starting their business. This sounds very counterintuitive. They spend like hours on focus groups and worrying about what the logo looks like. And as you can tell, I obviously didn't spend much time on the wiggy kit thing. <laughs> I, <didn't, laughs> I, I should have thought that one through a little bit better. You know, rather than just getting on and doing it and, 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 and appreciating what the feedback is from that initial foray, and then adapting, rather than sort of having a fully formed business right. before you started, why don't you dip your toe in, gauge, is there an interest for this? Do people want this? And then build your business around the kind of feedback and the feel that you're getting. Yeah. So you don't so waste money, for Agreed. example. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you definitely started small. You started with one dress Fine. style, two dress styles or something. It was 11, 11 dress styles, which very small, concise. You know, things that also, I don't tend to put things out there unless I 100%. So there's no duds. Yeah. You know, I'm not, there's nothing I put out there and I go, oh, this is a bit, mm, not 100% <laughs> sure about this. I love everything. And we cull up to the very last minute things that we, it's just for some reason, I'm not absolutely 100% loving it. And I'll just cut it from the collection because I don't put anything out there I don't absolutely love. In that first collection, were you surprised at what sold and what didn't? Or I guess everything sold. I could not believe it. I was astounded. <laughs> I, my husband said to me before I did my, before I launched it, he said, now don't be, you know, don't be discouraged if no one wants this kind of thing. It's, you know, you've done a great job. Well done you. But, you know, it's been, it's been fun. You know, so I already thought I was going in there. And he said, and also just be aware that all your friends are going to buy this stuff because they will feel a bit sorry for you <laughs> and, uh, and uh and you know that's great for one season but you can't go on indefinitely with a business with just relying on your friends buying your your pieces <laughs> so I was thinking this sounds great I mean <laughs> <laughs> glad I did and this. so yes I was lucky I had some friends that bought it but I had lots of people that didn't know me at all buying it I was thinking and when that happened I was like oh this is fantastic someone who has no knows me for, uh, not yeah. from a hole in the wall was buying from me willingly handing over their money and it just flew because my husband lent me 35,000 pounds to start this business but he said look one caveat you have to pay me back I said what what do you mean I have to pay you back <laughs> We're married. He said, no, 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 this is serious. You have to pay yeah. me back. So yeah. do you really, do you really truly believe that you've got a business here? I was like, oh, now you put it that way. <laughs> but I said, well, you know, I'm going to go for it. And within, I think, four weeks of launching, I'd paid him back all that money. And then by the end of the season, a, a couple of weeks later, I'd sold everything and made another 35,000 pounds profit. Wow. I was like, 
wow, I've, I might actually have something here. Maybe I should do a second collection. And the same thing happened again, the same thing happened again. Yeah. So unless my friends uh, are still being really kind <laughs> to me, I think I might have a business. <laughs> you definitely have a business. But I was going to ask, what, what is it like being married to another entrepreneur? Is it hard? No, I love it. I love it. In fact, I'd love for us to work together at some point. He might differ on that opinion, but I, I'm desperate to get him at uh, we kit hq i think he's he'd be great and yeah. i'd love to i'd love to work with him i'm not going to pay him anything though <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> so, so back to the dash what's next for you in your career oh um well i think just carry on developing the um different it's basically um, adding more categories so I've recently, as, as you know, I went into winter. I then did, started doing knitwear, which I love. I love knitwear. I, know I personally am a massive sweat. I love it. <laughs> I, I absolutely Sweaters. I mean, who doesn't like to wear a cozy sweater? I want to be comfortable. I want to be warm. And I think that they're, they're just really chic. I just, I love sweaters. So I went to started going to knitwear. Our knitwear is all manufactured in the UK currently. Uh, our yarns come from the best mill in Scotland. I mean, they're absolutely beautiful. Going into things like outerwear, I love outerwear as well. Really enjoy an oversized coat, a jacket. I, I personally spend a lot of money on those sort of items. Evening wear, party wear. I'm just hopefully this next winter launching the first capsule party collection. You'll be amazed. It's very different to what my sort of day dressing is like, but it has... <laughs> It's, but it's fantastic. It's looking utterly beautiful. And I'm sure, who knows, maybe there'll be bikinis in my future, sunglasses, shoes. Jewels. My, my, who knows? I mean, <laughs> so how about exercise wear? We could get exercise wear. Definitely. Who knows? So I'm always at it in my, whenever I suggest this, my team go, oh my God. Oh no, <laughs> please. Because they know that these are not false promises. I will go and do it. Oh yeah. I do know that about you. <laughs> <laughs> you and I both share a love of making women feel confident in themselves. Why do you think you're so passionate about that? And where, where did that come from? Well, because I want to feel that way too. And, you know, I can't be too different than every other woman that's out there. I really believe that the clothing and what you put on your body should make you feel comfortable in the environment that you're in and be suitable for the environment you're in. If you feel like you're dressed inappropriately for something, you just can't relax, you can't be yourself, uh, mm -hmm. you can't let your personality shine through. And confidence, I think, is the key to being able to kind of, oh God, this sounds awful, but sparkle within yourself, you know, yeah. to, to be engaging because you've forgotten about how you're looking. But also you can tell when you are looking all right because you can tell by the way that people react to you. Mm. And I think that's really nice and sort of life-affirming when you feel that, 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 that you're looking pretty good. And, you know, that's something that, you know, women, especially as they grow older, they struggle with maybe this, the, having the confidence they did in their youth as well. There's no reason why you can't be – in fact, I think – uh, you'll probably agree with me on this. I probably think even though I'm older, saggier, not in such good shape <laughs> as I was when I was younger, I think I look better than I did 
when I was with you in my early 20s. God, I had some terrible hairdos and things no, like that. No, no, you, you are, though. I mean, you're more <laughs> beautiful every year, but I think it is exactly that. It's because you're more and more yourself and you're more yeah. and more comfortable and confident in who you are. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really, I mean, every year I'm like, oh my God, Wiggy looks like she's aging backwards. You're just more and more beautiful every every. Oh, moment. that's very nice. A <laughs> <Et> toi, a <laughs> <Et> toi. <laughs> Merci. <laughs> bonjour. <laughs> oh, bonjour. <laughs> Wiggy. But tell me about running a business from two places. You live in the Bahamas and you live in London. I think it's interesting. And how, is it, how has that affected your business? Well, you can't do the creative part, really, unless I'm doing, you know, that, that collaborative thing. Because, you know, when I'm sort of sitting there and we're designing, we've got all the kind of the, the strike-offs. Uh, strike-offs are basically the pieces of fabric that you've had either printed or uh, you've had woven things like that or your lab dips you know for all the different pants because I manufacture all my own fabrics as well my own prints wow I don't I hardly ever buy anything off the shelf so it is that in itself is a massive part of my business it's an identifiable part of my business why people might be able to say oh that's really wiggy kit it's because I produce all my own prints and fabrics and that's very important to me but without being able to sit there with all the stuff that you need, um, without being able to put it on my body, because I'm I'm my own fit model. Yeah. I we 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 do it all to me, uh, for good or bad. So without that, you know, the kind of the creative part of it stalls a little bit. I have to say. So I can't be out here indefinitely. Um, and the trouble is, I'm on an island. There is no UPS or FedEx either. <laughs> so it's not like. It's not like my staff can say, oh, don't worry, I'll just stick, I'll be there in a couple of days. It's not, you know, yeah. you, to, to get here, I have to take a couple of planes, a boat, you know, several taxis uh, and, and, a, and a, a sort of a farm vehicle to get here. So <laughs> it's not easy, to be honest with you, um, but I, we make the most of it. And I'm very lucky to have a team that can kind of hold the fort when I'm not there. But we, you know, I spend every morning like this. Yeah. on a FaceTime or yeah. scribbling on a piece of paper. That's what I do. But I'm, and I'm sure it gives you a lot of insight on what you want to wear, what women want to wear. 100%. I mean, yeah. no better. When Every time I'm out here, I'm thinking, oh, you know, I wish, I wish I had something like this right now. And then I just go and design it and we make yeah. it and it's in the next <laughs> collection. Every podcast we ask what people wore to the prom, and I know that you didn't go to high school when you moved no. to Newport, oh, which you, oh. you should have gone just for the prom. Oh. Tell me. I had some – oh, God. <laughs> no, this just reminds me, actually. I had something which was sort of our equivalent to a prom. Okay. It was the end-of-school ball. Yes. And literally, it's a marquee event, my uh, – or as you like, guys like to call it, a tent – a right. marquee event, <laughs> yes. tent, um, with a band, with a dance floor, with a, you know, a sort of fancy evening. Well, and this was at a dance school, so that's intimidating. Already. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we were the performers as well. So we had to break in the middle and then oh, put God. on sort of like our MC Hammer pants and do a whole routine for, for, for the guests and then sit back at our table. I was having a bit of a moment. I was being slightly rebellious at that stage. I was basically fed up with everything and I'd been through a bit of a, a tough time and I had chopped all my hair off really short. I don't know whether you ever met me when I had oh, yeah. that really short hairdo. I've seen it. So I decided uh, uh, by looking at, what's her name? She's married to the guy from Duran Duran, that very famous oh, Yasmin, Yasmin Laban. Yasmin Lebon, she had a really cool short haircut. For some so, reason, I thought I might so be able pretty. to 
yeah, she was gorgeous, right? Thought I could rock this. Of course, I couldn't. <laughs> I had my hair chopped off like that. But I also decided that I was going to be very, very, as a bit of a, a snub to my school, because I really did not enjoy the school that I was at and the teachers and everything. I really didn't enjoy it at all. They were so unsupportive. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to show up at this party wearing a very, very uh, inappropriate outfit. <laughs> so I convinced my mother to take me to Harvey Nichols to buy a dress. And on the, I guess they have like a young, young area department. And I managed to find a knit, a knit dress that was basically completely see-through. <laughs> And I went with my mother. My father was living in the States at the time. My mother was accompanying me to the school ball. And I showed up wearing uh, basically like a skimpy pair of knickers underneath. <laughs> it was like that kind of Kate Mossy thing. Yeah. A knit dress, completely see-through yeah. with my short hair. It was just a, basically a big up yours to my school. And that's how I left. <laughs> You're like, later days. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> What kind of what so, shoes did you wear? Oh, awful espadrilles. <laughs> what? Wiggy. Espadrilles. It was a very casual look that I was going for. <laughs> I wasn't wearing espadrilles. a bra. Look, I wasn't wearing a bra. Why on earth should I wear uh, anything else that's inappropriate? That's appropriate. Wiggy, I love talking to you. Really can't wait to see you. Me too. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. dot com.